This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for being with us again. When we want to study the life of Jesus Christ, we know where to go. You go to the Bible. This is God's word. But what about the ancient literature outside of the biblical canon that purports to tell us or does tell us about Jesus? As my next guest points out, there is a very diverse and complex body of literature out there that's important to examine in light of current scholarly debates. So we are joined today by Dr. Craig Evans. He is a New Testament scholar and distinguished professor of Christian origins at Houston Baptist University as well as the author or editor of more than 90 books, including his latest, which is called Jesus and the Manuscripts, What We Can Learn from the Oldest Texts. Welcome, Dr. Evans. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much. Yeah, when you're discussing the subject of manuscripts as they relate to Jesus, I know you've got the Bible on the one hand, and then you have this ancient literature that claims to record Jesus's words and deeds. Why take a broad-based look at what's out there beyond just the biblical text? Well, it's good to, for one thing, to compare things. Like, I've had students over the years ask me every time we talk about the Gospels, and of course, Gospels and Gospel-like writings outside of the Bible always come up. Students will say, well, how come those weren't included in the Bible? On what grounds were they excluded? You know, questions like that. Right. And I say, okay, why don't you read them? And, you know, we have uh, in existence a few of them that are pretty well all there. Some of them are just portions, fragments, and quotations. And every time students come back and say, oh, man, I, <laughs> yeah, I can see why they weren't included. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's night and day. Nobody comes back and says, well, you know, after I read the Gospel of Thomas, I really think it should be included. Nobody ever says that. And I think, it, you know, it's just good to study it. But it's more than that. And and seeing the contrasts and so on, we get a better idea of why the Church did what it did, why the Gospels that we do have in the New Testament were written the way they were written. There was a desire to give us a real Jesus, the Jesus who walked around in the land of Israel. That's why the Gospels are so useful in archaeological work. These other writings that were written later wanted to give readers a different Jesus, and he's not real. He never walked the earth. Archaeologists, understandably, ignore them. So it's very helpful to study them. Well, it is. And you hear references in pop culture sometimes to some of these extra biblical sources, the Gospel of Thomas being one of them. Let's talk a little bit about the Gospel of Thomas, because people might have heard of it before, but might not know much about it. What is that particular book? Who wrote it? I mean, as far as what we understand about it in totality, and why didn't it make it into the canon? Well, for a lot of reasons. One of them is that it didn't, never wanted to be in the canon. That's what gets overlooked in a lot of this popular talk. The opening words of the Gospel of Thomas is, these are the secret words of the living Jesus, Ugh. which Judas did him as Thomas wrote down. Well, okay, it's a secret. And if you know anything about canon, you know that books that are canonical are books that are to be read aloud in church, to books to be read publicly. This is stated over and over again by church fathers and in canon lists. Well, the Gospel of Thomas does not want to be read in public. 
So it itself says, hey, I'm not part of the canon. What it really is is a commentary. That's what it wants to be. It presupposes that people have heard publicly read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It wants to give a sort of an insider's deeper look into some truths that might not be found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. The other thing, the actual documents themselves that we have, we have three fragments of Greek Thomas found in Egypt. They're clearly not written out in a way to be read aloud. There's small cramped handwriting, one of them written on the back of some other document. It's for private study, not public reading. So that's what makes it very clear. Thomas was never a contender for the canon. Right. So this is one of the Gnostic texts. So with the other Gnostic texts that circulate and people still see online today, where they all kind of have the same feel to them, the same idea, this gnosis, there's this secret knowledge that you can have, this higher ideal that you can have, that was all part of the Gnostic heresy? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Uh, they, they're all secret. What, it's always a private revelation. One disciple or maybe a few are off on a corner somewhere, hiding in a house, maybe up on a mountain. Uh, oftentimes Jesus appears to otherwise unknown disciples, Mary Magdalene, per, for example, or maybe Philip, or as we've already said, Thomas. And Jesus shows up mysteriously, privately, and has whole new teaching. And, 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 of course, people will say, well, that's funny. Never heard that before. Hmm. We, you know, Jesus was a public figure. Hundreds of people, thousands of people heard him teach, and his disciples wrote things down. Where's this coming from? And so it creates an alibi. Well, actually, you see, it was a private meeting. Hmm. It wasn't public. Jesus showed up in secret, privately, and disclosed new things that only the really mature disciples can understand. <laughs> so that's, that's the scenario that these later Gospels create. They have to, because the public knows Jesus. The public Jesus never taught that stuff. Where's it coming from? And that's how they explain it. Well, it would be harder to verify as well, wouldn't it? I mean, these were the secret words. Only the people who were there, you know, secretly understood it and heard it. I mean, when Jesus said that I, you know, I proclaim everything to you, what I tell you, go out and tell in the day and tell off the rooftops and so forth. Jesus was very open. Jesus was very consistent, obviously, in what he taught. Uh, But, you know, the, the formation of the canon also was the fact that these letters, for example, the epistles would be an example of this. They circulated among the church and lots and lots and lots of people read them and had the opportunity, it would seem, to refute any errors because there were still people around who could refute some of those errors. Well, that's correct. And that's another factor that uh, worked really against these later writings ever making it into the canon was because uh, other first century writings, you alluded to some of the letters, like Paul's letters, he actually quotes, you know, the, the scene of the Last Supper, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and he said, you know, the words of institution, it's almost word for word the way it is in the Gospel of Luke. We have things that Jesus said in the Gospels, quoted, paraphrased, alluded to here and there in other writings. Well, this stuff that got written in the second century or the third century, nobody's alluding to any of it, so it doesn't have any indirect endorsement either. Hmm, that's that's an important point. So how much of this ancient literature exists that claims to record Jesus's words and deeds besides like the Gnostic Gospels? How much is really out there? Well, there's a, a variety of things. There are about three dozen total Gospels or Gospel-like writings. I know in Dan Brown's book, Da Vinci Code, somebody said 80 or whatever it was. That was way off. <laughs> 
But uh, you do have sayings attributed to Jesus, what we call agrippa. They're not written down in the New Testament Gospels, but they are out and about. People quote them, or they're inscribed in stone. Sometimes they're in uh, other texts, even in magic texts. Jesus became well-known very quickly, and he his reputation as a healer uh, was very well known too, so everybody wanted to tap into him. So I'm not surprised he shows up all over the place. He was a big deal. In fact, even in his during his public ministry, we have a story. Mark tells it in Mark chapter nine, where two of his disciples say to Jesus, "Master, we there's some guy who's not one of us, not part of our following, is casting out evil spirits in your name," and we told him to stop. And Jesus said, oh, no, leave him alone. You know, he's not against us. He's for us. Now, that says something. So here's somebody who's not actually one of the disciples who has become so impressed by the power of Jesus' name, he's added it to his own formulas, charms, and recipes for trying to heal people. Well, you see this beyond the Gospels right on into the 2nd century, 3rd century. Uh, the synagogue, Jews, magic texts, pagans, everybody is appealing to Jesus for help. And I think that, I think that shows you just how huge his reputation was. Right, and solidifies the fact that there really was a Jesus. Not that that's in wide doubt, but you do have some scholars popping up now here and there who will say, well, we're not even sure there was a historical Jesus. That seems to refute that, just what you've said there. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, The idea that, uh, I mean, it's really absurd. I've debated uh, some of these well-known mythicists and so on, and it's the silliest thing in the world because, for one, uh, nobody d- doubts that Paul wrote his letters. Right. And so, uh, like Galatians and 1 Corinthians, those two letters in particular, nobody doubts that the historical Paul of the first century wrote those letters. Well, I mention them because in both of those letters, uh, Paul refers to James, Jesus' brother. Tell you what, we'll be right back, Dr. Craig Evans. Stay with us. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. When it comes to choice, the Ministry of Preborn offers the ultimate life-saving choice by providing a free ultrasound to an abortion-minded mother, all to introduce her to her preborn baby. And when she sees her baby on ultrasound and hears that baby's heartbeat, in eight out of 10 cases, that mom will choose life. I got to hear how strong her heartbeat was. I was like, I felt like she was supposed to be here. And it didn't matter what anybody else told me. And all that mattered was that I was blessed with the ability to carry life inside of my body. And that baby was supposed to be here for something. And that was all that mattered. Preborn is the direct competition to Planned Parenthood, and it's making a difference every day. The Ministry of Preborn reaches into the darkest corners and finds women in need to help them embrace motherhood. But the mission of Preborn is more than just a ministry to save babies. Its purpose is to glorify Jesus Christ by equipping pregnancy centers nationwide to help save both babies and souls. As Preborn puts thousands of ultrasounds into more pregnancy centers and counsels women, the ministry is also leading these moms to Christ. In 2020 alone, over 31,000 babies were saved and over 6,500 women came to the Lord. I'm going to keep my baby and I'm going to be a great mom. 
This Sanctity of Human Life Month, we honor the preborn by helping moms in crisis choose life for their preborn babies. Would you please join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help choose life for 350 babies this month? All gifts are tax deductible. One ultrasound session costs $28 and $140 will sponsor five ultrasounds. Any gift of any amount will help. $100, $200, or even $1,000. You can call now, 855-402 baby 855-402 baby that's 855-402-2229 or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com thank you for your gift this is janet mefford today and now here's your host janet mefford Welcome back. We are talking about Jesus and the manuscripts, what we can learn from the oldest texts. And with us today is Dr. Craig Evans, New Testament scholar and distinguished professor of Christian origins at Houston Baptist University. We were talking before the break there, Dr. Evans, about the fact that when you see the body of ancient texts that make reference to Jesus and and the sayings of Jesus and so forth, this would run up against some of the claims of modern scholars uh, here and there who might question whether or not there really was a historical Jesus. But you pointed out out that there's other evidence for that as well. Well, of course, and the best evidence is the early evidence. And uh, just before break, I mentioned 1 Corinthians and Galatians, two of Paul's letters. Nobody doubts that the historical first century Paul wrote those letters. And in both of them, he refers to Jesus' own disciples. He mentions Peter and John by name, but he also mentions James, Jesus' brother. And even skeptic Bart Ehrman says, hey, this is overwhelming evidence that Jesus was a real person of history. After all, if he didn't exist, you'd think his brother would know it. He was being a little (laughs) funny there, but it's a real good point. And so how in the world could Paul, in in the first century, be talking about Jesus' own disciples and family members? And what? He didn't exist? That doesn't make any sense. And that's why historians of every stripe, whether they are Christians or not, whether they believe in God or not, Uh, Historians around the world have no doubt that there was a historical Jesus who lived when the Bible talks about him right at the turn of the era, and his ministry was during the time of Pontius Pilate. There's no question about that. Uh, And these arguments that he didn't exist are really quite silly. Yeah, they really are. And, you know, it's hard for those of us who are not academics to keep up with all of this scholarship and the debate about the scholarship. What do you find is going on right now uh, concerning discussion about ancient texts? Are there any new controversies that have arisen? I know Bart Ehrman is always good fodder for Christians to say, what's a Bart Ehrman saying now? We have to refute it. But w- what is taking place in terms of discussion about some of these texts in which you're, you know, that you're discussing in your book um, that is important for Christians to know about? Well, one, one of them is that we just keep finding more texts and uh, fragments of the New Testament. Of course, a big talked about one just a couple of years ago was a fragment of, uh, of Mark chapter 1. And, uh, and I, of course, I have a beautiful photograph of it. Uh, it might be the first time in color, beautiful photograph of it in my book. And uh, it's just more evidence. And it's very early. It could be second century, which would make it by far the earliest fragment of the Gospel of Mark that we have. Wow. But what happens is, some people will say, well, why can't we just look at what we have and publish everything? But, uh, Janet, we have over 400,000 uh, pages of papyrus from antiquity not yet published. Wow. And uh, this stuff, you know, you study it, it, some of it is very hard to read, and we try to figure it out, we transcribe it, we try to translate it, we try to discuss it, we try to date it. It takes time, 
and hundreds of these are being published every single year, and some years maybe even more than a 1,000. But just do the math. It's going to take centuries to finish the job. And so when we go working through that stuff from time to time, we realize, oh, my goodness, we have a text here. It's a page from one of Paul's letters. It's a page from one of the Gospels. So we're always finding stuff, but occasionally we find something that's one of these uh, outside-the-Bible-type documents, and that creates a lot of interest, too. Archaeology keeps digging stuff up. Uh, more discoveries continue to be made. So this this is why this continues. This is why we can have this kind of conversation every year from now to the end of time. That's incredible. 400,000 pages that have yet to be published. Are these, for the most part, are these fragments all just little pieces or are there some intact pages that we still haven't learned about? Actually, they're mostly intact pages. I mean, sometimes it is just a small portion of a page, but uh, in some cases, it's it's a few pages still hooked together. Hmm. Uh, but in most cases, it's a single sheet. It's most of a page written on one side, sometimes written on both sides. A lot of it's what we call documentary. That is, they're documents, letters, business papers, imperial business, stuff like that. But some of it's literature. And of the literature, some of it is biblical, and that's the part that gets us all excited. Yeah. So, you know, the work continues. More discoveries will be made. We have 139 uh, papyri fragments now, texts of the, uh, of the Greek New Testament. When I went to seminary, the number was one-half that. Oh, wow. And so that just shows you, you know, and I'm not that old. <laughs> and, uh, you know, 20 years from now, we'll be talking about 160 uh, you know, and on it goes as these discoveries continue to be made. Well, there's so many to put out there. Why don't they speed it up? I'm curious. I want to see. What <laughs> I love it. I love it when people say that. Why don't you guys just get busy? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. It's economics. That's part of it. There aren't too many people who are willing to put in several years of training to get really good at something that pays very little. Yeah. That's the problem. It's like archaeology, you know. Why, why don't we get out there and dig more? Well, people volunteer to dig, pay their own way, pay money for the privilege of being at the dig site to dig, and then move tons of earth over a period of two, three, four weeks. That's it. They don't get paid anything. It basically, you're, you're paying your way into a servitude for, for a month, but that's what it takes to do archaeology. Well, you know what? Working through these papyri, it's about the same way. Hmm. And so it's hard work, and there's not much financial reward, and that's part of it. Yeah, we need some big donors to step up and help out in that realm, because that's that's important stuff to get out there. You know, one other thing, Dr. Evans, that you address, and there's so much that you get into in the book, people will need to read it, but you talk about Secret Mark. Now, I don't know how many listeners have ever even heard of Secret Mark, but you've talked about this as likely a forgery. What should we know about Secret Mark? Yeah, it's complicated. People hear it, and it almost makes you go cross-eyed. Uh, Morton Smith, he's deceased now. He died in 1991, a longtime professor at Columbia, New York. He claims that he found it at Marsaba Monastery in the Judean Desert in 1958. Now, what was it that he, that he found? And this is what confuses people. He found something written in the back of an old book. The book itself dates to the 1600s, and in three blank pages, you know, the end papers typically at the back of a book, someone had written out in hand, Greek, about two and a half pages, and it's supposedly a letter of Clement of Alexandria, a letter that would have been written in the year 220 or something. Well, obviously, Clement didn't write it at the back of a book 
printed in the 1600s. So somebody had copied it in from a later time. The question is, is this an authentic letter of Clement that, however you explain it, ended up copied in the back of this book? Well, in this letter of Clement, Clement talks about a longer secret version of the Gospel of Mark. That's what makes it controversial. If it was just a letter, I don't think anybody would care. But it's talking about a different edition of Mark. And, of course, it's got some stuff in it that's a little edgy. <laughs> Jesus meeting with the disciple who's, you know, a young man who's nude, no. <laughs> uh, and teaching him some kind of new insight into the kingdom. No. And Morton Smith himself was gay. Okay. And he made a lot out of this. Yeah. He suggested that maybe there were some very questionable sexual rights going on in the early church. Oh. Well, you could see why that was extremely controversial. Yeah. How are there a lot of problems with this? And some, some think that Morton Smith wrote the text out himself. Good grief. I wouldn't put it past him. That That's just a strange thing when it diverges so clearly from the body of of the canon. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Is that a pretty easy thing to look at and say, yeah, this is, this is forged? Well, I, I talk about it, uh, one half of a very long chapter that talks about this and some other salacious kind of material, including the Gospel of Jesus' wife fiasco that turned out to be a for, forgery also. But the reason I'm really bothered with this supposed letter by Clement of Alexandria and the secret mark he talks about is it sounds so modern. <laughs> he talks about not all truth is true. Ooh. There's true truth out there. Well, Janet, that's perspectivism that emerged in the late 19th century. Yeah. Nobody talked like that in antiquity. There's not one example from the past out of millions of words that we now have on computer and can search of any ancient writer saying true truth. Hmm. It just nobody would have talked that way. And then there's some other uh, factors in it that are very suspicious and sound like somebody who wrote this was familiar with Oscar Wilde oh and his infamous play, The Dance of the Seven Veils. I mean, it gets really weird. Oh. So uh, that's why most scholars won't touch it and, and regard it with high degree of suspicion. Well, I'm glad that you're educating us all about this because I certainly <laughs> don't want to read it. <laughs> I'm glad you're reading it for us. But, well, it's just such a great book and you can get a hold of it. Jesus and the Manuscripts, What We Can Learn from the Oldest text by Dr. Craig Evans at Houston Baptist University. And uh, we're really excited about the book. I just want to ask a couple more questions before we have to go. But ultimately, what would you say we can learn from the oldest texts? Uh, Dr. Evans, ultimately, why is that important for us to understand the role of these oldest texts and, and what we can learn from them because we know the Bible? What we can learn from these texts is, no, number one, we have a whole lot of them. We have a lot of old texts the text itself, the Greek New Testament, which gives us our, of course, our New Testament in whatever modern language, it's a stable text. So we can have confidence. We know that we have a lot of manuscripts. They're very old. The text is stable. We're not left wondering, what did Jesus really say? Yes. Or what did he really do? Or what did Paul really write in his letters? There is no mystery there. And so what we can have is confidence that you don't need to be frightened. You don't need to think, oh, my goodness, somebody has messed the text up. We'll never know what the apostles really said. <laughs> that is not the way it is. So I, that's what the bottom line is. People should have confidence that the text of the New Testament is stable. We've got great witnesses. There's nothing to worry about. And the stuff that's not in the New Testament, the stuff left out of the canon, 
real good reasons why that stuff was left outside the canon. Yeah, good for people to know. Well, again, the name of the book is Jesus and the Manuscripts. Dr. Craig Evans with us. And so good to talk to you, Dr. Evans. It was just great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you very much. You bet. Take care. God bless you. Thank you. This Janet Meffer Today broadcast is brought to you in part by Bible League. For $5, you can send one Bible to a Christian in need. Call 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. There has been no shortage of turmoil in the aftermath of the presidential election, but one of the biggest concerns that millions of conservative voters have going forward is whether or not they'll ever have confidence again in our election system. And that is why major changes need to be implemented in order to restore faith in voting. My next guest has now introduced the Save Democracy Act to try to rectify the serious problems in the system and also to put some common sense safeguards around our elections in the future. Now, this is especially important as Democrats are pushing for the passage of H.R. 1, also called the For the People Act, which would do huge damage to our election integrity. We're going to get some thoughts on all of this now from Indiana Congressman Jim Banks, who serves as chairman of the Republican Study Committee. Congressman, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. What are you hearing from voters about their loss of confidence in voting, and how did that lead to what you're proposing now in the Save Democracy Act? Well, that, that's, uh, that's the bottom line. We're at a crisis point in America where nearly half of all Americans have lost trust in our elections process. And if we don't do something about it, I believe we're going to uh, have real, real problems moving forward as the elections are the underpinning of our democratic process. And uh, what happened in November, uh, whether or not you believe the election was stolen, whether you, whether you adopt some of the rhetoric of that some have about about election fraud. That's rhetoric, by the way, that I've never used. The problem that does exist is how some of these states conducted their elections back in November uh, di- greatly diminished the public's trust in, in our elections. And what do I mean by that? On election night, when so many Americans went to bed and there was one outcome that they were staring at on TV, and then they woke up the next morning with a different outcome, <laughs> They saw some states stop counting ballots in the middle of the night, but continue counting ballots for days or weeks after Election Day. Right. That's a recipe. That's a bad recipe uh, for America to lose trust in a process that we need to trust in, that we need to work uh, to secure our, our, our democracy for, for, uh, for a long time to come. So that's why 30 of my colleagues and I uh, wrote the Save Our Democracy Act. There are a number of components to it I'm happy to talk about, but, but Janet, really three key areas. Uh, first and foremost, we say that once you start counting ballots, you can't stop. Okay. Secondly, we requ- require a greater uh, security with uh, voter identification. I mean, this is common sense, but if, it, if, you, if you, we require an ID for someone to purchase alcohol, we should require IDs for someone to go to the ballot box and present before they vote. 
Um, and then, and then on top of that, we also require that at least two representatives of each campaign of a federal election be allowed in the room when the when the the, the ballots are being counted. This was an issue that happened in some states, like in Pennsylvania, uh, where where. Uh, uh, or representatives of the campaigns weren't allowed to be in the room. And again, that's a that's a part of a bad recipe here that we're trying to correct. Yeah, and a lot of people were really thrown by that. I think it was in Georgia, that was one of the videos that came out where you had Republicans trying to observe the vote tallying and they were kept, I don't know, yards and yards and yards away. And a lot of normal Americans were watching this saying, how does this happen? We've been having elections forever. When did we suddenly become a country that puts up with this? And when did we get another opponent? party who doesn't step in as well and say for the sake of election integrity come on you guys let's get it together here uh, that, uh, that I've heard from so many people uh, in my in my district in Northeast Indiana who talked about this election being unlike any election of their lifetime and I'm talking about my my grandma I'm talking about um, about seniors in my community that have lived through uh, incredible history in this country for for generations and Understand that this election was conducted in a, in a way that was altogether different from every other election in their lifetime, and it was because of it was because of the pandemic. It was because you had in some states you had governors, secretaries of state, election boards, um, and other and judges uh, changing the election rules right before election day. Mm-hmm. And and the Constitution is very clear that this that election rules, especially in determining the electors. Uh, to the electoral college on behalf of a state are subject for to approval by the state legislature people that you and I elect from our community to go to our state houses they're the ones who have the authority to decide how elections are conducted right. but in this case all of that was thrown out the window and it created a bad recipe that is something that like like I said before this we're at a, we're at a crisis point if we don't if we don't do something about this now and pass legislation in the Congress that like the Save Democracy Act, if state legislatures don't go back and review some of these these uh, rules, then, then I'm, I'm, I'm scared about what our elections are going to look like moving forward. Well, I'm very concerned about it, especially given H.R. 1, and I don't know how many people really are on top of what is in this particular piece of legislation. They are really moving forward with this quickly. That's one of their top priorities on the Democrat leadership side. This is something, for example, that would allow individuals to vote without an ID, that would permit online voter registration that isn't tied to an existing state record, like a driver's license, while we're working hard on the conservative side to try to assure election integrity. It seems the Democrats are working just as hard to make sure that they keep integrity, you know, from being part of the process. How are you going to work through this sort of issue? Well, I'm glad you brought up H.R. 1 because this is a this is a dangerous path forward. The Democrat, this isn't the first time Democrats have introduced their version of H.R. 1. By, by the way, when we talk about H.R. 1, that means the Democrats have designated this legislation their very top priority in the Congress. Yes. And H.R. 1 this year is the same as H.R. 1 two years ago. And I, I remind people all the time that when they introduced H.R. 1 two years ago, that was before COVID-19. Uh, it's a piece of legislation that really does change the election rules to, su- to support Democrats over Republicans on Election Day. And, it, and H, what H.R. 1 would do and would have done two years ago, just like it's designed to do now, is to move all states toward all mail-in ballots. And, and this is, where, mm-hmm. this is where, where we go down this slippery slope of, of uh, opening, the do- open the, opening the door to the types of problems that we experienced last November. But in this case, it would be nationwide, not just in states like Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, 
Arizona, some of the other states that have received a lot of attention uh, for these types of issues. But on top of that, uh, the Democrats in H.R. 1 and their and their bill have added D.C. statehood. Why, why would they do that? Because they would give them two more Democrat senators in the United States Senate, right. uh, tipping the balance there. Uh, it would it would open the door to a lot of other causes that have nothing to do with election security and integrity would do just the opposite. Well, right. And wouldn't this kind of hogtie the state's ability to run elections, even the ones that are trying to do it properly? Yes. And that's that's what we've tried to do with the Save Democracy Act. We've tried to take the exact opposite approach. We recognize that states run the election. States should have authority and autonomy when it comes to uh, conducting their elections. Now, we do in the Save, Save Democracy Act, the Republican Study Committee and I introduced last week, uh, we do address these issues related to federal elections as related to choosing electors to the Electoral College. That's, that's, the, that's the nexus and the difference. What Democrats want to do is they want the federal government to take over the elections in the states and take all the authority away from the states and push them toward reforms that would tilt the balance to helping Democrats win on Election Day instead of Republicans. It's a, it's a shame. It's a shameful move on their part that at a, at a point where where trust in elections is already at an all-time low, this would send it over the cliff even further. Right. Now, in talking to some of your colleagues, do you have any support on the Democrat side? Clearly, we know the priorities of the Democrat leadership, but but what are what, are, what is the likelihood that you can get any kind of bipartisan effort going here? Yeah, sa- sadly, I mean, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but H.R. 1 passed out of the House last time. Yes. Um, I expect it will pass out of the House again this time. The, the big question, the... The, the, the big uh, elephant in the room is whether or not the Senate can maintain the filibuster and whether or not Mitch McConnell's 50-seat Senate minority can block measures like H.R. 1 from moving forward. And that, that's all going to hinge on whether or not they throw the filibuster out the door, whether or not some conservative Democrats and the Senate recognize that granting D.C. statehood is unconstitutional and uh, whether or not some of the other provisions in H.R. 1 would be uh, bad for our country too. By the way, another another area where HR one takes a dangerous path forward is is uh, public financing of elections. So if mm-hmm. if Democrats get their way, if you're a conservative, you'll be financing the campaigns of figures like Bernie Sanders with oh. your tax dollars. That's what Democrats want. We can't let them. We can't let that move forward where we're going to destroy the the fabric and trust in our elections even further. Absolutely. We need to get on the phone and let our voices be heard in Washington. Congressman Jim Banks from the Republican Study Committee, thank you so much, Congressman, for being with us and for your hard work. Great to be with you. All right. You take care. We'll be back. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. The other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League International, she's learning to share her faith, and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village. Bibles are desperately needed in Africa and around the world right now, and you can send one to a Bibleist believer today for only $5 
or $50 will send 10 Bibles. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-W-O-R-D, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not an insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I have to give a whole lot of credit to Senator Rand Paul. He had one of the best rants I've heard in a long time. And he put up a constitutional point of order concerning the impeachment trial, the ridiculous impeachment trial coming up at the beginning of February, February 8th of President Trump, former President Trump. I don't like calling him former President Trump, but he is former President Trump. The Senate voted on the constitutional point of order. And as Senator Paul said, senators agreed that this sham of a trial is unconstitutional. And that is more than will be needed to acquit and to eventually end this partisan impeachment process. This trial is dead on arrival in the Senate. What a colossal waste of time. Now, would you like to know the five Republicans who joined Democrats to kill Senator Paul's point of order? I bet you can guess who some of them are, but I'll tell you who they are. Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Pat Toomey, and Ben Sass. There you have it. And I think there were so many good points that he brought up. It's about an eight-minute rant, and it is well worth your time to listen to the whole thing. I don't have time here right now to be able to play it for you. But basically, he was making the point that impeaching a former president, a private citizen, obviously is the antithesis of unity. You don't have the chief justice presiding over the Senate trial, which is ridiculous. Where is the constitutional power to impeach somebody who's already been removed from office because a new president was sworn in. The accused here has already left office. And he talked about being in a gutter of rancor and vitriol, the likes of which we've never seen in our nation's history. Welcome to the modern left, folks. And the best part of it was when he brought up the fact that there have been many Democrats who actually could be accused credibly of inciting people to violence. For example, he brought up Bernie Sanders, Do you remember that shooting at the baseball game? No Democrat, as he said, will honestly ask whether Bernie Sanders incited the shooter that nearly killed Steve Scalise and the volunteer coach. The shooter nearly committed a massacre because he fervently believed Bernie Sanders' rhetoric that the Republican health care plan for the uninsured is that you die, which was never true, clearly. How come Bernie Sanders wasn't impeached? What about Cory Booker calling for his supporters to get up in their face, referring to Republicans? What about Maxine Waters? 
He said no Democrat will ask whether Maxine Waters incited violence when she literally told her supporters to confront Trump officials in public. And he made what I think was a very, very important point. He said Republicans never thought it would be legitimate to use the government to hold these Democrats responsible for Antifa and other kinds of leftists committing violence. They never even considered doing something so gross. But he didn't use the word gross, but I'm using the word gross. So hats off to you, Senator Paul. And this is kind of along the lines of what Representative Jim Jordan said a couple of days ago. Let's listen to this cut. I mean, think about this. The the fundamental issue is how do you incite a riot that was already planned? How do you incite a riot that, that when, when the breach happened before the president completed his speech? How do you incite a riot when the president said peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard? This is ridiculous. So you have the lack of due process, the fact that he's left office and the fact that he was engaging in constitutionally protected speech and specifically told rally goers peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard, which is what you're supposed to do in this great country. That is First Amendment liberties. That is basic freedom. So this this whole case is ridiculous. The country knows it. What they're scared of is this not just about threatening the, the president in the future. This is about making sure he can't run. He yeah. can't run again in 2020. That's what they're afraid of, because this president, when he was president, did more of what he said he would do than any president in our lifetime. And and that that, that is something the American people appreciate. What are you going to do? Go do what you told me you're going to do. Go do what I elected you to do. That's what President Trump did. And that's why the Democrats are afraid of him. Yep. Spot on. Right on the money. Now, this is very interesting. I mentioned the fact that of those five Republicans who joined the Democrats to table Senator Paul's very important point of order, among those five were Ben Sass. Now, I, I bring up Ben Sass because I don't happen to be a fan of Ben Sass. I'm really not a fan of Ben Sass. No, it's stronger than that. I think Ben Sass should be primary next time around. And I think you need to get someone who's actually good for the state of Nebraska to come in and take his place. I actually think there are a number of people who need to be primaried the next time around. So better people can serve in Congress than these people or in the Senate. So let's turn just for a couple of minutes. I don't want to belabor the point because, frankly, I'm sick of this subject. But it's worth telling you that good old Russell Moore is finding his mojo again. Russell Moore, who's been put on ice during the Trump administration because President Trump thought he was a nasty guy with no heart. And he was right about that. Russell Moore had nothing to do for the last four years. But for some odd reason, the Southern Baptists paid his salary. We don't know how much it is, but they paid his salary as the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission to do things like do nothing when the pandemic and all of its tyrants came along and said churches had to stay closed. Now, you would think a guy with the name Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission president would actually step up and try to help some of these churches. Nah, he didn't care. He's listening to country music and putting out podcasts and talking about anything and everything except what the church needed him to do. So, In my view, we should have gotten rid of him from the head of the ERLC pretty much the day he was put into office. But I've been I've been telling you about this guy for what is it, seven years now? 2014 was when I started talking about the fact that Russell Moore really shouldn't be in that position. So I'm glad to see more people are realizing this. Time magazine, though, did this nauseating and I do mean nauseating peace on Russell Moore. And there he is sitting in his office and he's just looking so cool and look at him posing in his chair. Give me a break. 
And they talk about the fact that the past few years have not been an easy time to be God's lobbyist. Oh, right, right. He's God's lobbyist. He goes on to have this, you know, they talk about the whole issue of the impeachment trial. And as you may know, it was just recently that Russell Moore was calling for Trump to be impeached and he incited this insurrection and it said many Christian leaders and thinkers decried the attack on the Capitol but few went as far as more he laid the blame squarely at the feet of a man many evangelicals believe to be their hero President Trump and Moore wrote this week we watched an insurrection of domestic terrorists incited and fomented by the President of the United States he called them to the rally he goes on this long rant and I, I really agree with Dr. Rob Gagnon who said the person we really need to impeach is Russell Moore. Here, here, Dr. Gagnon, I agree with you. But listen to this quote from Russell Moore. It's, he's talking about his stance. It's, it's been lonely. Yeah, there are two it's in this quote. It's, it's been lonely, but I think many people have experienced that sort of loneliness over the past four or five years. I don't know a single family that's not been divided over President Trump and politics generally. I don't know a single church that hasn't been. Uh, who's he hanging out with? I, 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 I don't know. Moore's opinions are not new. He's been a never-Trumper since at least 2015 and scoffs at the notion put forward by many evangelical leaders that Trump converted to Christianity just before being elected. Okay. He says, you know, it's not a position that I find rational. Well, you know, anybody can question anybody's salvation, can't they? Russell Moore. The usually mild-mannered author's stance has come at a cost. He says both he and his family have been the subject of threats and that people have tried to dig up information that would prove he is a liberal, heaven forfend. <laughs> okay, let me give you a little piece of advice. Time Magazine, since you guys are drowning in progressivism over there. When all the conservatives who really are bona fide conservatives put their ears up at something this guy says and many things that this guy says and said, something's wrong here. If all the conservatives are having that reaction, he's probably not a real conservative because a real conservative would act like one. This is going back to the Lord's command that when you're to examine somebody, you should examine his fruit. And we've been looking at the fruit and the fruit is bad. And I like to say you have this little group who are all kind of the same ilk, Russell Moore, Ben Sass, David French. I kind of make a joke sometimes and I say Russell Moore is just the Ben Sass of David French's or I'll mix it up. I'll say David French is the Ben Sass of Russell Moore's. This is the same kind of cabal. All they do is sit around and preen and act like they are holier than you. And maybe they are, but that's really offensive when you are constantly looking down your nose at God's people. Jesus never did that. And he actually had the right, if you think about it, to talk about his own holiness being better than ours, because it certainly was. It's perfect. These guys are just insufferable. They're insufferable. And I really hope that the Southern Baptists, as time continues along here, will come to their senses about their leadership because there are just a lot of people in the Southern Baptist Convention who have no business leading God's people in the Southern Baptist Convention. So I'll keep saying it. You need to wake up, Southern Baptists. You're not being represented well. Thank you for being with us on Janet Mefford today. God bless you and we'll see you next time.
This hour has been brought to you by Preborn. Help us save 350 babies' lives by the end of January through a gift of one free ultrasound. $28 saves one life. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com.